You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We usually begin these podcasts with a biography of our guest, but today his biography is the heart of the podcast, so I'll give an abbreviated version. We are joined by Thomas Drake, a former senior executive of the National Security Agency, who in 2010 was indicted on 10 felony counts, five counts of willful retention of national defense information, which is a modification of the Espionage Act of 1917, one count of instructing justice, and four counts of making false statements charges that would have carried decades of prison time had Drake been convicted. Instead, in early June 2011, the government dropped all of the charges against Drake and agreed not to seek any jail time in return for Drake's agreement to plead guilty to a misdemeanor of misusing the NSA's computer system. Drake was sentenced to one-year probation and community service. The federal government, the Government Accountability Project, defines a whistleblower as an employee who discloses information that she or he reasonably believes is evidence of illegality, gross waste or fraud, mismanagement, abuse of power, general wrongdoing, or a substantial and specific danger to public health and safety. When information is classified or otherwise restricted by Congress or executive order, disclosures only are protected as whistleblowing if made through designated secure channels. The word whistleblower is a weighted word. It has a connotation. It's thrown around in situations in which it probably doesn't always apply. It's heavily debated with the Snowden case. There's no question in many, many people's minds that Thomas Drake is a whistleblower. He tried to do what was right and was punished for it. You might know the story already and disagree. If you don't know it, you may disagree by the time we finish this interview today. Regardless, this is a conversation we need to have. No matter what side of the issue you come down on, these issues aren't going anywhere. So, Mr. Drake, thank you for the t- taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Thanks for having me. So, your career in intelligence began during the Cold War when you were an officer in the Air Force and you flew SIGINT surveillance missions against the East Germans. What drew you to the military in the first place? It, my father had served in World War II. Uh, he was career Air Force. He had retired right before the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, it was an opportunity to go overseas, an opportunity to serve the nation. It was an opportunity just to wear the uniform. How, how did your early experiences in intelligence work shape your worldview? I know that's a big, broad question, but you were able to see, particularly in the East German contingent, you were able to see what surveillance states looked like from a very clear position. 
Yeah, it's one of the ironies in, in my case, particularly once I became a very public figure after the government indicted me uh, so egregiously in uh, April of 2010. Uh, I mean, the Cold War was a very monolithic period. It was defined as black and white. The Soviet Union was the great enemy, the great threat. It had been so for several decades. And so this was the 1980s, and it was really the height of the Cold War in many respects. There was a number of incidents that took place during the 1980s. And so I flew on RC-135s on various variants of the RC-135 as a voice processing uh, specialist, um, really a cryptologic linguist. And the target country in which I became an expert was East Germany. So, yes, I mean, in terms of history, here I was listening in, you know, on a surveillance state, a police state. You then moved to the private sector and would work for companies essentially doing contract work with the United States intelligence community. Uh, in a in a basic sense, what kind of work were you doing in between your time at the Air Force and when later on you joined the NSA? Yeah, I was a government contractor for a number of years, although I did uh, do a lot of consulting in Silicon Valley during what I call the go-go 90s and early 2000, 2001, uh, right as the dot bomb uh, explosion right. took place. Uh, it was a fascinating period. I mean, this was when Internet really, although Internet existed for a long time, ironically enough, it was really an invention of the, of the government. Right. With a university consortium uh, in terms of what would happen if the, you know, the th w nuclear winter uh, took place. And you still need to get the communications out, right? Uh, that's really what it was originally designed for as really an extraordinarily robust way to get the message out in terms of communications. And it was packet-based, not traditional circuit-based. But Internet really came into the fore during the 1990s. And so during the, during the period after I left the, the Air Force, I had a short stint at CIA. I was also an uh, intelligence officer of the Navy down at the Pentagon at the National Military Joint Intelligence Center. And you were a naval reservist, too, I, if yes. I remember. Yes, yes, uh, for a number of years. I was actually in the alert center. Uh, served on several desks, including the electronic, um, the ELIN desk, electronic intelligence desk, uh, the, the terrorism desk, interestingly enough. Actually, I was there during the... 1993 bombings when they tried to drop the World Trade Center towers the first time. And then I was actually on the Middle East and North Africa desk. Uh, so, and I was a contractor. And I was really in IT. I was an information technology. I was a system and software engineer. Um, really, the, the, the heart of IT is software. Yeah. And in 2001, you formally joined the National Security Agency. In fact, your first day at work was September 11th, 2001. Yeah, the first day I reported. I actually joined in, in on 26 August, but it was a couple of weeks of processing. Mm -hmm. I took the oath to support and defend the Constitution uh, for the fourth time. I was brought in as a very uh, as a senior executive, uh, very senior position. I actually reported to the number three person, uh, who at the time was the Signals Intelligence uh, Director. Uh, it was, in some ways, you say an accident of history, uh, although it was a choice I made, NSA was under tremendous pressure from stakeholders, particularly Congress. How do you remain relevant in the digital age? Right. And NSA was extraordinarily challenged by this. And, 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 but now you're a decision maker. Now you can actually maybe potentially affect change at NSA. Well, irony is I was actually – the title, my original title was uh, Senior Change Leader. <laughs> well, yeah. well, we'll talk about how yeah, you tried. Um, but, yes, the first day reporting – on the job was 9-11. I never imagined when I woke up very early that morning uh, what would happen. So you'd been around the NSA as a contractor for many years, and but can you answer, how did 9-11 change the environment at NSA? It completely changed it. I mean, it was, was, I, it, was it a combination? 
and I, it was a combination of the technology changing already, like you just talked about in the 90s, 9-11, uh, with the new threats overseas. And, um, you know, there's a lot of soul searching, I imagine. I mean, we've talked to a lot of people who were analysts at CIA, uh, you know, on the Bin Laden team at CIA. And, and just the mindset and just their worldview dramatically changed overnight. Do you see the same thing at NSA? Yeah, although, I mean, this is part of the burdens of history that I carry even to this day. Because, you know, I was introduced to Osama Bin Laden when I was on the terrorism desk working for the DIA to, for the J-2, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, mm-hmm. the senior intelligence officer. So in the alert center, that's where I got to know UBL. That's where I got to know what he was, what his threats were. But a lot of people dismissed it. Uh, they just even even in spite of the '93 uh, attempts to, to drop the towers or truck bombs, it wasn't really considered uh, a top priority. And it hadn't been for the years that followed, up to and including uh, 9/11. Um, it just wasn't a priority. And but remember, 9/11 was not supposed to happen. We right. were never supposed to be again electronically surprised. Uh, this was a, you know the aftermath of Pearl Harbor. This you know, extraordinary infrastructure was set up during the Cold War, an electronic infrastructure that was very much part of national security. Um, you know, this this was de- and in, and it grew over the intervening decades. That infrastructure uh, did not disappear just because the, of with the collapse of the Soviet Union right. in '92, uh, or when the wall had fallen down a, a couple of years earlier. Um, it, it didn't disappear, but. NSA was born in the depths of the Cold War. Right. You know, it was it was created literally by the stroke of a secret pen, uh, President Truman's pen, in, in the fall of 1952. Um, it was not legislated by Congress. You know, it was not passed into law, right, and signed or signed into law by the President of the United States. A lot of people forget this. It was a very secret military intelligence agency, and its primary uh, you know, focus was the Soviet Union. It was a communist threat. And it did so in the shadows. Well, that's why it, the joke was it was no such agency. It was what NSA stood for. It was you know, never no was. such agency. Never say anything. Right. right. So it's just it's the irony for me is extraordinary burden. The workforce took it really hard. NSA. I mean, I, I went around with the signals intelligence director, attempting not just to console the workforce, like because they realized we had failed the nation. We had failed to keep people out of harm's way. That was a fundamental responsibility. I mean, indications warning. I was brought up as a you know as a tra- traditional intelligence analyst. If you have indications if you, or if you have warnings, you take action. Right. You don't want harm to visit people. And here, almost 3,000 people were murdered, including well, hundreds of foreign nationals. Right. Well, let's talk about the response. Uh, and specifically, let's talk about Trailblazer and Thin Thread, because I think that's the heart of this conversation. In part, although that's not all of it. Okay. Some people forget that there was the, the mass domestic surveillance program that was initiated the deepest of secrecy right after 9-11. Well, let's, let's start with that. Sure. Yeah, that's really the heart of why the government after me. All the okay. rest is really, is really a veneer. Uh, it's really to misdirect. The real reason they were ticked off was that I disclosed through proper channels that right. the government was an abject violation of the Constitution. And, and let's talk about those proper channels, because I, I think people hear that and they wonder, what does he mean by proper channels? So let, let's go somewhat chronologically. Sure. You're, sure. You started by reporting to your bosses that at NSA that you thought this was uh, an unconstitutional program. Not only that, you thought that these programs were massively overpriced, that they were they weren't going to work as well. They weren't going to protect privacy. And there was a much cheaper, better version of this that would keep Americans' privacy intact. 
Right, and that had been ongoing for some time. NSA realized that it had a significant challenge well before 9-11. It, we call it, they had challenge problems. There was usually top five. And, you know, if it's a challenge and you're an engineering organization, let's solve the problem. Um, however, General Michael V. Hayden, who's central to understanding my case, he's central to the history of NSA, particularly uh, 9-11 and everything that's followed. Of course, he went on to the DNI as a principal deputy director. He then subsequently became the CIA director. Right. Um, he still is ver- a very public figure, right? He currently works for the Chertoff Group. Right. Uh, he made a strategic decision um, in the spring of 2000 that he would buy the solution for the 21st century to meet the challenge that NSA faced in terms of digital age and new threats. And in- instead of taking the very best of American ingenuity and in inventiveness, he said, we're just going to buy it. So a billion-dollar program was launched with great fanfare. Uh, it was a flywheel contract called Trailblazer. But here I was right after 9-11 at Decelerate Ford where another decision was made at the highest levels of government up, and, up to and including the White House that we're going to go far beyond anything we've ever done before. We're just basically going to instrument the United States electronically for the purposes of mass digital dragnet surveillance. The extent of which to this day has still not been fully revealed in spite of all the snow disclosures. Right. So I came face to face with Pandora's box. And I'm looking deep into the abyss, and the abyss is looking back at me. What do you do? You don't wake up one day and say, I'm going to become a whistleblower. I, mean, I was hired in to help affect change. I was right. hired in to help NSA meet the demands of digital age. I've been living this digital age personally and professionally for a number of years. I had been consulting in the heart of Silicon Valley with major companies and those you still haven't heard about. Well, I just want to interject that you weren't – one of the criticisms, fair or unfair, and I, I roll on the unfair side of, of Edward Snowden, is he's, he's a kid, doesn't have a lot of background in this. He was a low-level IT guy. We can get to that. I, I don't agree, but people make that criticism. They certainly can't make that criticism about you. You spent, at this point, decades serving the government, serving your country, working with both two military services, working within and without the intelligence community. Uh, and so you're not just somebody who just took a job and decided to, to whistleblow. You... you, you I'm sure this took some thinking. That's an understatement. Okay. But I realized what I was faced with. You know, we all have moral agency. But I had taken an oath to support and defend a constitution. And at that point, you had taken it four times, right? Fourth time as a senior executive. You don't take that lightly. And it's the way we govern ourselves. It was a grand experiment. For all of its faults and foibles, it had existed since, you know, the late 18th century. Uh, And I was not going to break, break... you know, break that oath. I was going to keep faith and you know true allegiance to the same. Right. That was fundamental to the oath, and that oath was to support and defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I never imagined that I'd find myself defending the Constitution against my own government in secret, no less, right. based on secret violations of that same Constitution. So, effectively, nine eleven was an excuse for the government to engage in conduct that I can only say was in willful violation of the Constitution, all in the name of national security. And they did so in the deepest of secrecy. And one of the first decisions that were made, there was a number of critical decisions made in those days, weeks, and months after, after 9-11, that fateful day. One of the first decisions that were made, and it was incredibly well protected, we're talking one of the deepest state secrets of all time, was we will instrument the United States. We don't know where the threat is. It could be anywhere. So we just need access to to any and all data wherever possible. And they started with phone numbers. They started with the telcos. Some cases took existing secret agreements and expanding them greatly. 
but basically giving unfettered access or the equivalent of unfettered access to phone numbers. That was then rapidly expanded to a number of other uh, sets of data, including emails, including Internet usage, uh, data usage, financial information across the board. It extor- I mean, just, it just makes the Nixon era look like pikers. Yeah. even makes the, the church committee, uh, one of the premier committees that, that investigated a lot of this, right, they all opened up during the 1970s, mm-hmm. uh, where NSA itself had been in violation of the Constitution because it was used as an instrument of national power to spy, spy on Americans. I think people fall back on the argument that all of this was legal. And it was. All of this was technically legal. The FISA courts looked at it. The, the executive signed off on it. The Gang of Eight signed off on it. But legality and constitutionality aren't the same thing. No, they're not. And FISA was actually in the loop. I mean, even, even Michael, if you listen to, to General Hayden, he is extraordinarily open about what actually took place. In fact, he actually brags about it. He boasts about it. He had, had no constraints at all. Raw executive authority is what he's actually said was the basis for the secret surveillance program. That's a different form of government. That is not a constitutional form of government. This is what I was confronted by. Mm-hmm. This is just raw executive power saying, hey, we're just going to do this. And when I confronted the lead attorney at NSA, this is in early October as I began the probable cause evidence, and, I'm, and now I'm confronting the attorney at NSA, he said, you don't understand. The White House has approved the program. It's all legal. And I'm saying, wait a minute, you're in violation of the Constitution. There's a legal, there is a legal lawful means right. in this country by which you change the Constitution. If you really believe that the FISA of 910 is insufficient, as well as other statutes, go to Congress. I'm sure they'll be very glad to help change they or modify. They checked anything at that point. Too, exactly. You know? Which essentially began to take place under the Patriot Act. But that came later. That right. was late October of, of 2001. In this case, he said it was chilling, absolutely chilling. This was my moment of truth. He says, with what we want to do, they'll say no. I'm saying, whoa, Congress would say no in just weeks after 9-11 to modifying FISA, which had been modified five times since 1978 when it went into law under the Carter administration? Whoa. That was really – and there's where I made the choice to become a whistleblower, right? Fully. I'd already confronted my immediate boss, right? But here I was, this is not good. And this would have enormous strategic consequences downstream. Well, and, and, when people, and it was all unnecessary. Yeah. See, the, right. what's critical to understand, even to your listeners, it was all unnecessary. We actually had the means, even in the FISA of 910, to go after the threats of the day. There was even basically a, a, a hot pursuit option where you didn't even have to technically have a warrant if you really believed there was that great a threat or that great of a warning that you received to go after a threat within the United and NSA could pursue it. They just bypassed all of that. Basically, right. So what happened to me, I'm confronted by the reality that not only had the wheels come off a constitutional republic in secret, but we were an entirely different vehicle. And that vehicle was simply fiat power being being driven by the executive and again you use the word whistleblower and i'm going back to the definition now the idea about designating secure channels and you didn't just stop with your bosses at nsa or the lawyers at nsa you went to the next level the department of defense inspector general you both went to both the house and the senate intelligence committees you talked you were a material witness for two congressional 9-11 investigations 
You emailed directly the new NSA director, Keith Alexander, once Michael Hayden left to try to let him know because he thought he was more tech savvy. Through an intermediary, you reached out to the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, William Rehnquist. Yeah, that was my colleague, yeah. Diane Rourke. We were so concerned. That was earlier on. And yeah. also through Diane Rourke, you reached out to the House Intel Chair, Porter Goss, who would later become the director of CIA. Talk about yeah, it's... designated secure channels and trying to get the word out. And I think that's, that's what I want the listeners to know. Look, we can debate whistleblower all we want to, but I can't. I, I look at this list, and I, I don't know where else you could have gone at that point. There isn't, short right. of going to the press, but that was fraught with enormous peril. Right. Well, I ultimately did go to the press. Right, and that's, that's the decision you finally made, right? Well, it was a fateful decision, but I had known that all along. I was well aware of history. I was well aware of what happened to Ellsberg right. Right, with the Pentagon Papers. I mean, he was really the, la- he was the first whistleblower charged under the Espionage Act. Well, and you are actually now... In that list, there's only four people who have been charged on that particular U.S. code. Well, at the point I was charged, yes. Right. And Under 793. Yeah. Now, now it's uh, many. With the Obama administration, uh, supposed to be the most transparent administration in history, uh, I guess the, the statistic is they've, they've targeted or, or arrested or charged more whistleblowers or journalists than any other administration. Well, in every other administration in history combined. Yes. Which... Uh, not, Eleven not, to date, although not all are whistleblowers. About right. eight of them are can be classified as whistleblowers. So in December 2005, the New York Times ran a story, a famous story about warrantless wiretapping that the NSA was doing. Uh, this, this is somewhat tangentially uh, related to your case, but did, is this the thing that really inspired you finally to reach out to the It's news? actually directly related to okay. my case. Because, see, I was well aware of the secret surveillance program. What was revealed in that article, and although I had never had any contact, although the government alleged otherwise, right, that's why I was which saying is really this. the basis for their, their case. They really, when that article came out, right, two weeks later, they, I mean, the system went apoplectic. There's no question, because this was a state secret of the highest order. So now there's, any, there's revelations coming out. And that was a story, by the way, the New York Times had sat on for 14 months, well prior to the, the November 2004 presidential elections. Who knows what would happen to have been made public then. Obviously, they wanted to keep this extraordinarily silent. They did not want anybody to know about this. And this program had been in place at this point for well over four years. It was called Stellar Wind. Stellar Wind was actually the umbrella program. Mm -hmm. You only whispered for even people that had any hints or knew about it. But that's what it was called at Stellar Wind. It became known as a president surveillance program. That was sort of the overarching, right, executive authority. Remember, just executive authority. They did later, and it's a long story in terms of how they did go. To, they ultimately did go to the head of the FISA court mm-hmm. at the time, just to, to quote unquote, brief her, but without telling the rest of the secret court. It was com- the system was completely compromised. Right. So here is this article being splashed across the New York Times, and then being picked up. And there was a number of articles that ensued well into 2006, mm-hmm. and I realized. I did have one final choice, although I've been contemplating this well before that article came out. Um, and I had confronted General Alexander you know, a month earlier in a letter that, that basically was blown back on me, and I ended up losing my job at NSA, and I had to find other work. I was, that's where I ended up at the National Defense University right. in the summer of late, uh, early fall of 2006, late summer of 2006. So the article is published in the New York Times, revealing for the first time the existence of the so-called warrantless wiretapping program. It was just the tip of the iceberg. Two weeks later, 
the DOJ launches a massive criminal leak investigation. And I knew even when that article came out, there were because there were so few people that knew about, were associated with, or had any knowledge of the secret surveillance program, the domestic mass domestic surveillance programs, uh, and the and the digital dragnet, and how far at this point it metastasized, I'd get caught up in the criminal dragnet, and that's well, precisely mean, what happened. Especially at that point, because everybody knew that you had been talking to everyone. Well, yes, so, yeah. Well, two nine, you know, I, I, the NSA knew. In fact, they had warned me about even communicating with a congressional nine eleven investigation. It's extraordinary, a whole, a whole history uh, on that. It's it would take several hours to actually unwind. Mm-hmm. How you know, not just how far I went to blow the whistle, but how much evidence I provided. To this day, no one can find the evidence. Right? They, all the only record that exists that I even had any involvement with the nine eleven congressional investigation. The two of them, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, both the Saxby Shambliss subcommittee uh, investigation, which was the prelude to the much larger joint inquiry, both the HIPSI and the SISI, both both the intelligence committees had a very significant, which was really the basis for the 9/11 Commission, mm-hmm. which of course was independent. Right. Uh, thousands of pages of documentation, not just on secret surveillance, but on the multi-billion-dollar fraud um, and 9/11 failures. That there was intelligence that, that NSA actually had that was not properly shared upon which you take action with the National Command Authorities. So I knew I'd get caught up in this criminal leak investigation that was launched with, with great publicity in late December 2005. A couple months later, I made the, the, the fateful decision to go to a reporter with unclassified information. You reached out to the Baltimore Sun? That's correct. And Exercising you, my First Amendment rights. Well, and I think you made a key word here, and I was going to ask you about that, is you said the word unclassified. Yes. And, 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 I, and that you've maintained that to yes. this day? The, the the government disagreed, although they ended up having to drop charges in the end. Well, in fact, any of it. they had to. They actually had to acknowledge in court that none of the data, data or any information, or any of the documents, or any of the information they alleged I retained, uh, was classified. In fact, it was actually unclassified. Well, and then in late two thousand seven, your house is raided by the FBI. Uh, I read somewhere yeah, that they, they took your dissertation that you were writing. Is that true or not? I, I read that somewhere. I'm not sure. Well, they took a lot. They took it all. Basically, any electronic information I had in any form, devices, hard copy, soft copy, hard drives. Yeah, it was quite something watching them walk out of the house. I mean, I had gone digital many, many years earlier. I mean, I learned I learned how to program an Atari 8-bit home computer. You know, I... I had seen the transition, a rapid transition from the analog world of intelligence collection during the Cold War to digital. We were one of the premier platforms that had made that switch in the early 1980s, late 70s, early 80s. It was an extraordinary period in terms of computer technology, computer-assisted technology. So, you know, here I was. And, yes, this, this, this criminal leak investigation, based on the New York Times article um, written by Eric Lichtblau and James Rice launched this massive criminal leak investigation, which we know from New York Times reporting several years later, involved upwards of five full-time prosecutors and 25 full-time FBI agents, including agents from their premier mole hunter unit. Again, in terms of history, and here we are at the New York International Spy Museum, the mole hunter unit is actually the unit at, at FBI that's specially trained to go after real spies. Mm-hmm. They were using that unit to go after me as well as others. Well, and the, and the, the sad coincidence is that they thought you were behind the New York Times article, so they raided your house yes. when you actually were behind 
Yes. And other series of articles in the Baltimore yes. Sun. Which also didn't help. I recognize right. that that was also a trigger. But the basis for the entire leak investigation was a New York Times article. Right. Which we now know was written. We actually now know who the, the leaker was, I believe. I, at I least think. one of them. Right, at least one of them. There, are, They said there was actually over a dozen. I was not one of right, them. Right, and not you. Never yeah. was, in yeah. spite of the government's allegations. What, what I think is, and then they indict you. What I think is interesting well, about took them a long time, though. What I think is interesting about the indictments and for all the different things that were they indicted, it, they didn't indict you for sharing NSA secrets as far as sources and methods no. and the way you NSA went about and you know encrypting emails and stealing stuff. They indicted you for exposing system failures, exposing mismanagement programs. They they indicted you for exposing massive billions of dollars of overspending. And you had said only uh, at that time, only four other people had been indicted under this law, and Daniel Ellsberg was one of them. Um, the trial itself, I, I read this through the trial transcripts and several the pre-trial, uh, well, the pre-trial. I guess yeah, there was no trial. Yeah, was the pre-trial transcripts several times, the back and forth between the lawyers, and I, I hate to use the word shenanigans, but it seems it seems pretty apparent that the prosecutors were trying to use every method. They realized their case was. Not particularly good, but they tried to do things like use the silent witness rule oh, yes. at the trial oh. to uh, to ensure. Uh, can you explain a little bit about what went on in all these back and forth? Because I, if I read it right, they tried to get you to roll on others. They tried to get the defense attorneys to reveal your witnesses, which is one of Early the biggest on, no-nos. Actually, it was a violation of, perce- of due process, yeah. and the judge cut that right off. I was very fortunate to have a judge that continually said the de- the, de- the criminal defendant has rights. I'm here to also help protect those rights to ensure that he has proper representation, due process. That was a violation of due process. They wanted right. – they were afraid. In fact, they alleged it was my former NSA colleagues in Diane Work who were the ones that were going to be the defense experts. Nothing could be further from the truth. Mm-hmm. And it, it would have been a conflict of interest in terms of defense to have had them – it's one thing to be a character witness. It's a whole other thing to be an actual uh, defense expert. Right. Well, and, and I didn't bring them here, but there are just stacks of the defense exhibits of NSA. Page after page, page after page, yeah. thousands of pages. It goes into the hundreds of exhibits that were filed. I lost, I mean, most, no one has actually gone through all of them to really understand how far the Obama administration went to put me away and destroy my life. Yeah, I mean, Stephen and, what, and the basis, because I, I was really the example they wanted to make. Right, and I think that's important that, that, you know, this is sending a message more than anything, it seems, yeah. that, you know, a warning, a shot across the bow for, yeah. for anyone who followed you. I, I did want to share with your listeners, it's important to understand this. It's just really critical. I found out from very well-placed sources during the course of my pretrial proceedings that Vice President Cheney himself, right after the New York Times article came out, he said, fine and fry whoever leaked, make an example of them, burn them. Now, interestingly enough, it wasn't the Bush administration that ultimately indicted me, although there was a secret indictment, a draft, a secret indictment from the grand jury. Uh, Ultimately, it took the Obama administration. In fact, he did look backwards, not forwards, to make an example. And I was, remember, this is before all of the, this, my indictment took place before Chelsea Manning was actually arrested. This indictment took place before all of the other people. Right were prosecuted under the Espionage Act or variations of the Espionage Act. 
So it really was, although Shammai Leibowitz had been another case under 798, which was really the communications intelligence, um, this was the first, I was the first whistleblower since Ellsberg charged under the Espionage Act of 1970, modified 1950. Right. Same, same paragraph. And the McCarran Act in 1950. Well, it was actually Senator Pat McCarran, McCarran yeah. International Law. And he, this is, here I have at the International Spy Museum. Yeah. And I, there's something else I'll be sharing with you in terms of more how, how I've been painted by the National Security Establishment even more recently in terms of history. Oh, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah, talk about a rogues gallery. Oh, yes. Pat McCarran, 1950. You go back and listen. Some would say he was, he was actually the pre-Joe McCarthy. Right. Right? Where there's just this, this hysteria to find threats, communist threats. that could be anywhere, right? Yeah. He himself, go back to the congressional record. He took personal responsibility for modifying for the first time the original 1917 Espionage Act, which was designed to go after spies and saboteurs under the Wilson administration. Right. Personal responsibility to update that Espionage Act with paragraph E designed to do what? Deal with Alger Hiss and the so-called pumpkin papers caper. Right. Now, the I was looking out my, my, uh, the windows of my house when they raided me, and guess what they had? They had a couple of people out around my property with poles looking, looking for, for... That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's just, I shudder. I still shudder. It's all surreal, right? It's, but the, the critical thing, if you read the original affidavit, uh, the so-called probable cause affidavit that was presented to a magistrate judge uh, for a search warrant, it's, and then you look at the search warrant itself, it's crystal clear that the focus, the entire focus, was finding anybody that had any information that could have ended up with the New York Times regarding the secret mass domestic surveillance programs. All the rest, in many respects, is kabuki. All the rest is misdirection. It was clear, and then it didn't matter that I wasn't a source. They just wanted to fry somebody. The chief prosecutor, I cooperated with the FBI after the raid, that day for many, many hours. They didn't want to talk about high crimes and misdemeanors that I continued to report. They said, no, we're here for other purposes. And so they had all these questions. They had more questions in December, and then I was asked to come down to a secret FBI facility in the greater D.C. area. And when I was there in April of 2000, this is 2008, this is fully two years before I was indicted. Right. Five months into my cooperative period with the FBI, the chief, I meet the chief prosecutor. For the first time, this is Stephen Terrell. And he says, how would you like to spend the rest of your life in prison, Mr. Drake? We have more than enough information to put you away for a long, long time. You better start talking. Because it, the threat was, if I didn't cooperate with the investigation, I would end up in prison for the rest of my life. Well, you and even if I did, that well, too. that's yeah. the irony in all right. this. I had not only had it cooperated, I had provided everything that I had done and known, Right. And none of this evidence pointed to what they wanted. If anything, it's true. What I did say was used against me. It was used to frame me. But isn't it a, an irony of history? At that point, I was considered an extraordinarily dangerous person in the same, same category that Ellsberg was considered where McKissick declared the most dangerous man in America. Right. So here I was, right, looking at the chief prosecutor, and I said, I will not plea bargain with the truth. If you say you have all this evidence, then make your case in court. 
And clearly they weren't able to. Was it two days before the trial was supposed to start? They dropped. It's, it was literally the day before. We weren't actually scheduled to meet the Friday. It was on a Thursday. There was an opportunity uh, on my terms to actually plead out. The government had other options. The other options is they could have kicked it up for what they call an en banc uh, interlocutory review uh, at the appeals court level in the, in, the, in, in the circuit court. They could have appealed it. And if they had appealed it, um, they could have left it left it. Just I would have had this hanging over my head for for could have been many years. That's what happened to Jeffrey Stern, the CIA whistleblower. Right. They act, the same prosecutor actually did that. He didn't like what the district judge said, and they kicked it up. And it was twenty months before um, the higher court actually weighed in. So you you, you pled to a lesser uh, charge. It was a minor misdemeanor yeah. for exceeding, and this was actually under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um. For exceeding authorized use of a computer. Authorized use. Right. So it was an agreement. Uh, the only other restriction is I couldn't actually uh, FOIA my own records, although other people can. Right. But that was really the only other restriction. I, I was put on one-year probation. I was uh, given 240 hours of community service. Ultimately, that resulted in interviewing veterans from World War II to the present day for the Library of Congress's Veterans History Project, extraordinary set of interviews. It's all all now been posted on their website. But the damage at that point had been done. Extraordinary I mean, damage. I you, mean, you, I, you had no security clearance. You were a pariah in the national security community. Understatement. And what? It's an understatement. You, yeah. And the cost alone, if I actually calculate loss of income, no pension, I was five and a half years from retirement. If I had decided to retire early, based on all of my previous uh, government service, including military, right. um, as well as CIA, um, it's over well over a million dollars, and that's just that's just the financial cost alone. That does right. not count the personal cost. Extraordinary. Well, in decades, spending defending the country in whether it's the military or an intelligence agency, and you're relegated uh, to working at the Apple Store in Bethesda. For and a I still am. I'm right. unable to find any other work that's to true. this day. Well, let's talk about to this day because that was back in in 2011 when all all of that was settled. Yes, uh, and you would think the government would be maybe not happy with this, but that you would kind of not be their top priority anymore. But what I'm holding in front of me that you already referenced a little bit, and we'll put this up online so that people can see it. It's a slide from a PowerPoint presentation, a joint Department of Justice, Office of the Director of National Intelligence PowerPoint presentation. And the PowerPoint presentation is actually online, the whole thing. You can find it, but this is a particular slide. And the title of this is Those That Have Done Us Harm. And there's some usual suspects on here. You've got Aldrich Ames, Anna Montez, Robert Hansen, Kendall Myers, Nadal Hassan, who is a Fort Hood shooter. You have Aaron Alexis, who is the Navy Yard shooter. And then your name and picture is on this list. You are directly under Robert Hansen yes. into the right of the Fort Hood shooter. Um, and this is this is this year. This, this is, is brand new. I, I'm sure. Brand new. Yeah, the and, co-director of the Joint DOJ ODNI. Uh, N- National Insider Threat Task Force. And I want to ask you, if you think you're on this list because of who is to the right of you, Edward Snowden, who I didn't mention here, do, and I'm not, I'm not, this is not to say you shouldn't be on this list or should, I think, is your recent activism something that put you back in the crosshairs? It's possible, government? but it certainly sent an extraordinarily chilling message. Oh, absolutely. Because it means that I've been declared historically an insider threat. I'm a national threat to the security of the United States. And it's what the grand, the grand irony for me, uh, and the, the egregious irony, of course, is the only way I can characterize it, is that they regard me um, as an enemy of the state. Right. 
because of what? Because I defended the Constitution? So it was criminal to defend the Constitution against a government violating the Constitution with criminal conduct. Let me ask you about this quote. on Al- All unnecessary. Uh, I keep saying it's unnecessary because the very best of American ingenuity and inventiveness had actually solved the, the challenge problem of big data, had solved the problem of the digital age, had actually solved it. That, all those, those solutions, not just thin thread that you made reference to earlier, were all rejected by NSA outright. So to come back and then claim uh, that I was a criminal for defending the Constitution under the allegations that I had retained national defense information for the purposes, and it's important to note this, for the purposes of disclosure to those not authorized to receive it. There's no See, I'm put in the same league, as is Snowden, with shooters, killers, right, terrorists, and the Hansons of the world. Right. Notice though, those that are considered traditional spies have flags under their names, respectively, in terms of right. Cuba, China, and Russia. You notice there's no flags under the killers or under my name or under Snowden. I actually have sent out a tweet to the ODNI gov saying, hey, you know, don't I deserve a U.S. flag under my name? I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. And, and, a person without a country. Right. And, and I want to bring Snowden, Edward Snowden did an interview with Al Jazeera recently uh, where he said, if there was not a Thomas Drake, there would not have been an Edward Snowden. And, and, and in this case, this is where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of step into the shoes. I, I feel as though you've won over 80%, 90% of our audience. I feel as though the conversation we're about to have, you may lose about half of them because everyone is very divided on Edward Snowden. And so I, I am going to kind of be a, uh, a, an audience surrogate in this case to kind of bounce these sure. ideas. So one thing that I found extraordinary about you being on this list was – to this day, and there's no evidence to point otherwise, unclassified documents is the Correct. key component behind your case. Yes. You, you, you know, you, they never could prove, and you claim, and you, there's, again, nothing to prove otherwise. That you I never just on passed. the record in the court, in the yeah. records of the court, and by the judge. He, he, he took the government to task on this. They had to, in the end, acknowledge that none of the information I retained, none of the information that was actually published, that was alleged, for which I was allegedly the source, was classified. Snowden, however, but they talked about yeah. extraordinary damage, right. gravest, the gravest form of damage, the highest level, grave damage to the national security of the United States. In fact, it's important to note that the chief prosecutor actually said before the judge that what I did was worse than what spies do. Why? Because spies disclose their secrets in secret to other spies, right. foreign intelligence agencies, right? They, he said before the judge what Mr. Drake did is disclose secrets that ultimately got published in a newspaper, and everybody gets to see them and read them, including the spies. That's how far they went right. with this. Now, to show up on that list as a rogues gallery? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's I mean, extraordinary. Remember, Ellsberg, it's ironic. I've actually talked to Ellsberg about it. I was sort of jiving, hey, wait a minute, you know? You're, you've <laughs> yeah. not even, you're not even on this list. You bumped Ellsberg from Right. I mean, in terms of history. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't as you know, relevant for the day. It's just... It was chilling. I have to tell you, I actually listened to most of that. I was alerted to it by a reporter, and I ended up listening to most of it when I was actually overseas in Strasbourg, France, where I was invited to speak on privacy. Mm-hmm. And this was, of course, right in the aftermath of the mass murder the shooting spree in Paris. Right. Right? So that was really the backdrop for that entire conference. Here I am finding out that I'm on a rogues gallery. It's just chilling. 
So I, I want to ask you about this, because you, you've had a chance, you've talked to Snowden, you, you converse, you, you actually very much respect each other. So what do you say to those, and there are, there are about half of them out there, who are, who are torn about Snowden? I don't, I'm not sure I care about the ideologues on either side. Um, there are plenty. There, the ones in the middle who argue that the, the documents, classified or otherwise, that Snowden released that dealt with domestic surveillance what, is what makes him a hero. But the documents that he released that deal with legitimate overseas intelligence yep. operations is what muddies the water significantly. Well aware of that. I mean, how, how would you respond? I mean, you, you never leaked classified information, but as a, as a strong supporter of what Snowden did, is this something that, that you see as a muddy, or, or are you just okay one way or the other with it? I wouldn't see it as muddy. I had always hoped that someone like Snowden would eventually come along. Here's why. The United States was actually the petri dish for mass surveillance. Mm-hmm. Then it was exported overseas because of the technology. And the mantra was collect it all. Alexander himself has said that. Right. Just collect it all. In fact, I was told that early on when I confronted the lead attorney at NSA. We just need the data, Tom. I don't care. We don't just need it. Wherever it's from, we just need it. We just need the data. So the focus, this obsession to collect as much data as possible, the haystack principle, became the basis for mass surveillance. And if anything, it makes it a lot harder to find real threats, to follow real threats, to target real threats, to track real threats. You do not have to collect the entire digital haystack or the data haystack because, in essence, what you're doing is you're turning every straw into a needle. It's a fundamental violation of information theory. They should know better. But in, because they have extraordinary access... There, and because they had failed on 9-11, the decision was, we just need as much data as possible, and it doesn't matter where we get it. And look at all of the mass shootings, killings, uh, terrorist acts that have occurred over the intervening years. The ones, the big ones that, have, that became very public, in which many people were murdered, or injured, or maimed, were not stopped by any of the mass surveillance programs. Now, there is an argument that when it comes to foreign intelligence operations... Right? that Snowden went too far. My response there is, yes, you can make that argument. But remember, he gave the information to journalists. So it was left up to the journalists right. to make the decision as to what to reveal. And you can get into the ideological arguments. Right. And I've seen Glenn Greenwald hold his own quite well uh, on stage with some of the leading ideologues on the far right in particular, including uh, General Hayden. Um, yes, you can make those arguments. On the other hand, I also fall back on this. You don't use a classification system. You don't use a secrecy system to simply cover up conduct, right, that actually makes national security worse right. and actually makes us more, more insecure, less secure. And I think Snowden's made that argument as well. Yes. Where and he himself said, as I have said, one reason I ultimately went to the press myself, and this is sort of where you see both sides of sort of the same coin that both Snowden and I inhabit, I remained in the United States. I didn't leave the United States. Some people said, why didn't you leave? Well, I just I chose to remain. I was constrained. I couldn't leave. During this period, This is, you didn't bring this up earlier, I couldn't even leave the local area without special permission from the court, and the government had right of first refusal. The only thing left that they could have done, which was a concern of my criminal defense attorney at the time, is I would have been wearing an ankle bracelet. Right. Well, it turns out they're also tracking me as well, but that's a whole other story. Snowden realized, seeing what had happened to me, seeing what happened to the others, and all the subsequent indictments, charge, you know, all, the, all the secret charges, all the indictments, 
under espionage, all the all the others. Whether you, you were talking about the Kim, Sterling, Kiriaku, right? Um, he saw that. He said, I'm going to have to leave the country at extraordinary risk. He knew that. So I understand in the end it was it's important for the public to know how far the surveillance regime has gone and let's have the debate. So we never had the debate after 9-11. Right. It was not the debate. We're not going to have the debate. We're just going to do it. And even Hayden himself told Diane Rourke, yes, all this is eventually going to come out, but just don't say anything now because we right. still need the program. So you, you've written that one thing that, that differentiates you from Snowden is he actually got documents out. Do you, do you regret not having physical evidence that you can point yeah, back to? You know, I've had long conversations with Ellsberg. You know, Ellsberg went through channels. People don't realize this for several years. Mm-hmm. The channels that existed then, just like the ones that formerly existed when I blew the whistle for many, over many, many years. All radio silence. In the end, he made a fatal decision. I'm going to copy the Pentagon Papers, of which he was a part, and I'm going to provide it to the press. And, of course, we know what happened to him. He actually ended up in trial. So Snowden, seeing all that, recognized it was going to take substantial amounts of documentation to demonstrate once and for all just how far the surveillance regime had gone. And obviously I had documents. I had given all those documents within channels, yeah. highly classified documents. Now you wonder why no one can find them. Right. Because it's actual evidence of government willfully violating the Constitution when it was totally unnecessary. We, this idea, see, part of the challenge, frankly, in this conversation, even the ideological uh, the ideological debate about all this is like somehow it's either or. It's either security or liberty, right? It's either privacy or freedom, right? It's, it's either you've got to go all the way or not at all. It's like there's no both and. There's right. no balance. I've argued for years. I argued this even back in the fall of 2001. You can actually have both. You don't have to compromise either one. Right. Because compromising either one, especially when you focus on security alone, or as make that a, pri- a primary focus, guess what? You're going to lose both. Right. And Benjamin Franklin did have something to say about that in terms of history. We sort of forget the lessons of history here. This obsession, by the way, with every time, and you know, we have another tragic incident with in San Bernardino mm-hmm. with a mass murder, right? Where the call is, we need more control, we need more surveillance, it's never enough. You want perfect surveillance? Well, that's a form of society that I don't think most people in the end... See, here's where the echoes of history are ringing in my ear. Really loud, because I listened in on a police state for many, many years. You want perfect surveillance, we had one, it was the Stasi. Yeah, well look what happened to their society. I've talked to people who lived in that society. It wasn't Real pleasant. Yes, you had guaranteed jobs. Yes, you were secure. But my gosh, you're walled in. And you're being monitored. All activity was being monitored. Yet they had nowhere near the capacity of the systems we have today. Now, I could be very cynical and say, hey, you know, spying is at least the world's second oldest profession. It's, it's the game of the ages. NSA has said it's the golden age of surveillance. Hey, it's whatever we can get away with. It's whatever we can do. But are we actually making the world more secure? Right. All this calls for back doors, front doors, a, uh, uh, exceptional access is the word you're starting to hear now. Not just lawful intercept, but exceptional access. I know. I used to analyze code for covert channels. Okay? 
all of that just makes us more insecure. Remember, we, what do you want? You just turn society inside out? Again, it's sort of this all or nothing. It's this zero-sum game. It really isn't a zero-sum game. If you make it a zero-sum game, guess what? So, so Snowden, in the end, made his own fateful decision. He had extraordinary access, right. exceptional ass- access by virtue of the digital age to all these kind of documents that are showing how far the system had gone. And so your case and Edward Snowden's case and, and others uh, have really brought this, the NSA to light in many cases. Far like, more than ever before. Well, my question really is, this isn't just an NSA problem. No. This is a widespread institutional yeah. problem across the board because yes. one of the questions we always get at the spy museum or, or people like the NSA going rogue or the CIA going rogue, and I have to stop them and say, this is not one agency making it's decisions. This is coming from on high. Literally. Yeah. And, right from the president. And, and in some cases, I mean, with, with, like, for instance, the conversation about, uh, let's call it enhanced interrogation, you know, that was torture. Con- that, that was congressionally okay. That was going through the courts. This is a overall yes. American problem that needs to be talked about. But this is, a, this is a slippery slope of a democracy becoming more of an autocracy in secret. And I just, I really have to hold up a mirror in terms of history. Do we really want to go that way? Is that the price we pay for national security? Is we lose the heart of the American experience? I have these conversations with people overseas. Right. And people very concerned about the United States. Because the United States was always considered sort of this beacon. For all of our faults and foibles, we were considered sort of this beacon. We were like the example. And I realize we've engaged a lot of questionable activities, even in terms of our foreign policy. Just look at the preemptive invasion of Iraq and look what that, what that created. Lots of legitimate questions about how we actually conduct our affairs, whether it's domestically or – but remember, if you're overseas, it's how the United States conduct its affairs in terms of foreign policy. Lots of questions can be raised. I had this chilling conversation with a couple from Germany. He said, you need to understand something. We live in Germany. It's post-fascist society. You're in America, and you live in a pre-fascist society and don't even know it. This is what we face. Right. And some of the rhetoric that I hear even politically – especially in the wake of Paris, right, and the and, and ongoing wake of San Bernardino as it's unfolding. This is just chilling language, right, chilling, chilling language. And yet there are real threats. I'm the first to tell right. you right here at the International Spy Museum that there are real threats, there are legitimate threats. Why don't we focus on those? Why don't we focus on causes? Why don't we deal with the root, root of these instead of just, wiring everything i don't want see i lived i literally lived as a person for many many years under the boot of the government doing everything i could to find a way to put me away for the rest of my life or for many many decades i live what it feels like winston in 1984 remember in 1984 george erwell's chilling novel winston in the end gave in right he, he stopped resisting so to be put onto a rogues gallery list by the co-director of the National Insider Threat Task Force in the same league as killers. Killers like that just happened in San Bernardino. I mean, this is, I was like, whoa. I mean, right. I'm an American who took an oath to defend the Constitution. I end up on this list? Yeah. So what then is the Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity organization? So I think that leads directly into this conversation. Oh, Ray McGovern and, and a number of us um, 
write articles, publish articles. And they're, they're basically open, open letters and articles to the establishment. And we're holding up a mirror. And this includes William Binney, a fellow NSA administrator, whistleblower, Ellsberg, uh, yes. Valerie Plame, who yes. was a close friend well, of ours here one. at the museum. She got, yeah, her, yeah. She, her, her entire career. She was a knock. I'm well familiar with knocks. Yeah. Non-official cover is the most sensitive cover in the CIA. And effectively, you know, her husband, Ambassador Wilson, who ended up becoming essentially a whistleblower right. with an op-ed, the punishment was, we're going to out your wife. Which brings us full circle Whoa. to the wow. irony. The irony of Dick Cheney talking about Gee. going after the leakers. Yes, <laughs> sure is. And yet there's, they're unveiling a bust of him in the Senate right now, right? Because, you know, by, by, people forget this, Constitution wants to preside over the Senate and, and its, its affairs. Although that's, you know, he, technically there is actually an office that he, he maintains right. on the Senate side of, 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 uh, of our government. Yeah, a bust of Cheney. <laughs> No, Cheney's central to my own story. Right. I mean, but Cheney, you know, Cheney, people forget this. Cheney is, is, is central to understanding the last several decades of how far we have moved from a constitutional uh, republic. When he was the chief of staff of Ford, remember, some would say historically we never should have pardoned Nixon. Right. That that was actually a mistake. We should have let due process take its course. You have to remember, if you go back and look at the articles of impeachment for Nixon, it included using, abusing instruments of national power, like NSA, like the IRS, to go after what? Political enemies, journalists, reporters, activists, war protesters, and others. Thousands and thousands. So he had said years ago that if he ever had an opportunity, he wanted to essentially restore the imperial presidency, that Nixon had gotten a raw deal. So here was his opportunity. And remember, I have to say, though, dealing with uh, counterterrorism operations was not a priority when the Bush administration came into office. It was not. It was not a priority NSA. I know that because I used to work with those same people. And we know that because on Thin Thread, this is a small factoid for your listening audience, the... Intelligence Authorization Act, which is part of the National Defense Authorization Act, was delayed because of 9-11. When it was passed in early 2002, it included a provision where they set aside $14 million. It was signed into law by the president, and it directed that NSA deploy thin thread to the 18 most critical counterterrorism sites. NSA defied the law. They never deployed thin thread. There was another program called Sweep Forward. It was given $5 million, which is an extraordinary analytic program, out-of-the-box analytic program. That was all shut down. Now, you tell me, when you have the very best of American engineering inventiveness, necessity, mother of invention, and you're an engineer, you want to solve the problems on behalf of what's best for the American people, and under, under, the, under the preamble of the Constitution, one of the two primary responsibilities of the government is to provide for the common defense. So you're providing for the common defense with the very best of who we are, and it's set aside, it's kicked under, and any attempt to, say, and to hold up the mirror and say, government, we could have done all this under the law, all constitutionally, we never had to go to the dark side like Cheney said five days after 9-11. Right. It was all unnecessary. Those are the birds of history I continue to wear to this day and carry to this day. And there's a question, you, you just see how frustrated you are about the idea that 
the, you know, thin thread and the different ways that could potentially have been used yes. would be more effective. In, in, Far in, more. Not only superior intelligence, but probably would have found threats a lot quicker and would have tracked them much easier. All rejected. All literally rejected. I still have. I, I, remember, I remember in the spring, spring of 2002 when, because I, I was the executive program manager of ThinThread when, when my fellow colleagues retired uh, in great frustration. Uh, Bill Binney himself said, I couldn't watch the subversion of the Constitution happening before my very eyes in secret. I had to leave. I decided to fight on. I decided to stay on. I would defend the Constitution as best I could for as long as I could. That went on for a number of years. Right. But in the spring of 2002, my program manager comes to me and we were directed to turn ThinThread and all of its code and all of its documentation over to another part of NSA. And you remember that picture in Indiana Jones at the very end, the very first Indiana Jones? Okay, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right. where you see that government warehouse. The warehouse. And the Ark right. is in a box. And you see it go down, and in the background are just thousands upon thousands of boxes and crates, and then it turns left. Right? Well, they found it later, of course, but, yeah, <laughs> in a subsequent movie. But that's what happened. Here it was. It was, it was NSA's Indiana Jones digital warehouse. I, I just, I, where, where is the justice in terms of providing for the common defense? You can understand. Right. And then you end up being charged as a criminal for exposing government's criminal activity, for exposing the government's multi-billion dollar boondoggles. And for the 9-11 intelligence failures. And you're the one, after all is said and done, I'm the only one to date, the only American to date in relationship to surveillance, mass surveillance, that was criminally investigated. I was actually secretly charged. People, most people don't know that, in that same FBI facility. I was then very publicly indicted. Go back and look at the the public uh, statements not just from the affairs, the public affairs office, but actually senior government officials about what, how bad an American I was. Then I was convicted. I was in fact, um, convicted and sentenced. I'm the only one. All the others have immunity. Now you tell me, I'm the one that became the criminal, Right. right? Is that really the best of America? I don't think so. I really don't. And, it's why I do fear for the future of the Republic. I still, I'm, I've become very public myself. I remain public. I have many, many invitations to speak about all this. And when I speak to millennials in particular, because I work mostly with millennials, they get this. They get what's at stake. I actually had a 20-something share with me just the other day after seeing the Silence documentary, which I'm featured mm-hmm. along with my extraordinary attorney, Justin Radak and John Kiriakou which really goes in the personal ordeal that we all experience at the hands of the government, who said, what you did, Tom, was for us, of, for, and by the people. Mm-hmm. She just said it. She's a millennial. You can't take liberty and freedom for granted. Just can't. Well, Thomas Drake, thank you for taking all this time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. We really appreciate you having you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.